Good afternoon, one and all. Thanks for coming back to Singapore Perspectives 2031. It's 25th of January 2031. And looking back at the past decade, it's clear that the planet, and of course Singapore, uh, has dodged the bullet. We stared down a precipice, we saw that the world was overtaken by COVID-19, the pandemic, and a few others since then. The economic dislocation gave us a stare in that year. And let me take this off. So we stared down the precipice and had a fright. There was the pandemic, the economic dislocation, the rich got richer, the winners won it all, and the poor were left behind. There was a real worry that the world would fragment and Singapore would have to beat the odds to pull it together. So that was January 2021. Those difficulties came on the back of other bubbling crises. Uh, the tensions of a trade war between US and China, built on a rivalry between the existing superpower America and the emerging regional power China that's gunning for global dominance as well. Um, so there's every worry for a small state like Singapore, wondering what would become of um, its industries, hit by trade disruptions, but the disruptions in value chains as a result of the pandemic. Everyone waiting for borders to open, for uh, goods to be redirected in a way that made sense for businesses, uh, for people to travel. And, you know, in 2021, people were very conscious that almost 20% of the economy of Singapore depended on services reliant on aviation, on tourism, on F&B, retail, uh, waiting for borders to open, waiting for the Hong Kongers to be able to come through on that first travel bubble. But thankfully, also in January 2021, it seemed like the world had turned the corner and the patient was recovering. Um, Instead of taking its final breath, the world, and even Singapore, was able to really take a quick gasp of air and say, let's get it back on track. Let's back, get life back on track. In Singapore, we had a conversation. We had several conversations about our future. We have a culture of looking at the future, not just ruminating on the past and letting what cannot be done or what hasn't been done hold us back from what we can do. And in those conversations, we found that we have more in common than what divides us. And the concept of intersectionality that was such a buzzword and Singapore Perspectives 21 uh, had taken off. What are those cross-cutting ties? What are those cross-cutting interests? that bind us together. In fact, COVID-19 reminded us that like a chain, which is only as strong as its weakest link, the weakest member of society is the one that we actually need to focus 
more deeply on, uphold, empower, strengthen and build up. So that's how Singapore turned the corner through the conversations. And then the mood changed in order to look at what programs, what policies could be put in place so that in addition to Singapore's traditional strengths of organizational efficiency and exceptionalism recognized around the globe and even in managing COVID-19, Singapore then in the decade after 2021 managed to build an ecosystem, another uh, watchword, that would empower and create greater innovation and all sorts of new industries started to blossom. And that really came from building innovation hubs, not just in universities or just outside university in Black Block 2071, but innovation hubs in ITEs and everywhere else. You would find somebody talking about the new thing that he or she was doing. So we have that buzz. Social workers found that they had an audience among the scientists and the artists found that they could help create narratives that would bring that buy-in that a business panel in the morning of that Singapore Perspectives 21 talked about. Persuasion, the art of persuasion where it's not just the hard sciences, the math, the technology, but really the social sciences, the art of conversation, collaboration, engagement, deliberation, and really convincing somebody who has yet to be convinced about an idea is a skill that is much valued. So let's turn back to 25th January 2021 and remind ourselves of what three panelists at a, a session with the leaders, representatives of the political parties that are in parliament had to say about the future going forward from 21 to 30 and 31. We have on the panel, or we had on the panel, Senior Minister of State for Communication and Information and Health, Dr. Janil Puticherry, himself an MP in GRC of Pongo Pasiris. But more importantly, the head of uh, young PAP, People's Action Party, um, um, join us on that panel. As you know, People's Action Party has been governing Singapore since 1959 and soon going to break the record of being party in power for the longest ever. But joined, joining Dr. Puttacheri is Mr. Gerald Giam, who's become the MP of our Junit GRC since the July 2020 general election. Mr. Gerald Giam, is representing or was representing the Workers' Party. A very rare showing for us. We are very, very pleased that the Workers' Party is represented and uh, that he will talk about WP's plans and uh, programs for the decade ahead. Finally on that panel was Ms. Hazel Poir. Ms. Hazel Poir, representing Progress Singapore Party a new party in GE 2020. Um, she is a non-constituency member of parliament. Or she, 
of West Coast GRC, probably in 2031, it might be a different position. Ms. Poir, a founding member of PSP. So, each has 10 minutes, or each had 10 minutes in 2031, we're looking backwards, to share their party's views on what needs to be fixed in order to get there in 2031 to a better and brighter future post-COVID. Dr. Buttercherry, it's over to you. Thanks, uh, Gillian. Thank you very much. Um, I will try to keep my remarks short. Those of you that know me will understand the internal struggle I'm going through. Uh, politician with a microphone. But if I try to draw together some of the threads of the discussions that I've been uh, hearing about over the last few days of this conference, as well as some of the issues that are at the top of my mind, our mind, and perhaps I can provide a framework for the many questions that I know are coming later on. And through those four or five topics, give you a sense of how I might then address uh, Jillian's question while um, exercising what is usually the prerogative of every politician to answer the question they wanted to be asked as opposed to the question they were actually asked. <laughs> um, so I'd maybe make some comments on four broad areas. You can't talk today about our country, our future, leadership and politics without addressing COVID-19 and the extent of the pandemic and the long tail of the effect that it's going to have. Uh, secondly, that long tail on our economy, our uh, view of how we need to develop ourselves and create opportunity for the future. And then I thought I might pick up on two issues which various other panelists and speakers have spoken about, brought to the fore over the last few days. One, the issues of identity, especially race, religion, our model of self as a, as a, as a nation. And then lastly, the issue of technology and the role that it plays, both in terms of the development of our country, uh, what it is it exposes about some of our risks and challenges going forward, and the role that it's played. And I, I will answer one of the questions, which is about politics as well, which I think is what okay. Julian would really like me to speak about. Um, so if I could maybe start with uh, identity. The, this issue of race and religion. Much has been said uh, about this in the last few days and for many years, it's increasingly part of our discourse. People are forming views, writing about it, commenting on each other's views. In what I see as an increasingly productive manner and an increasingly open manner, being able to bring a diversity of opinions as well as a diversity of disagreements to the fore. I would just make one extra point at this juncture, and I'm happy to have further questions about this, which is I believe some of this development as to an increasing openness around this discourse in our country is for different reasons compared to the increasing discourse that we see outside. In our country, I think in Singapore, people have seen the positive benefit at being able to discuss some really deep-seated issues that they have held close to them, prejudices and stereotypes and biases that they have worried about perhaps for multiple generations, and they have seen that that discourse hasn't been held back, hasn't resulted in a negative consequence. They have had a, a positive incentive to talk more, to dialogue more, and develop a deeper understanding. In other parts of the world, indeed there has been increasing discussion and discourse on this, but some of that positive reinforcement has been because it has been successfully exploited 
for the purposes of political mobilization. The issues of race, identity, and religion have been successfully weaponized, and that exploitation then has driven that process of increasing visibility of those issues. So I would posit that the reasons why we are hearing a lot more about it are quite different here in Singapore compared to the rest of the world. I think that is something that we need to think deeply about and how our approach to it will, will set what it means for us, what it means to be Singaporean with respect to race, religion, and our sense of identity. For technology, I again would point to a difference between Singapore and the rest of the world. The whole world has been using technology and technological tools for public health purposes, COVID-19, contact tracing, but also the delivery of government services and increasing infrastructure, an increasing technologically driven infrastructure that permeates every aspect of our lives. But in Singapore, the state and the government plays a specific and slightly different role from many jurisdictions that we are familiar with. As a, as a, as a government, we have engineers within the public service. As a government, we design and build our own apps and our own platforms and our own services. We set the standards, and we are, hence, a different type of regulator and not entirely beholden to the private sector about how we will use digital tools uh, for the betterment of our society. That's not to say we don't want the private sector involved. Very much so, many of the things that we use in our daily lives, the private sector has developed or has built upon the architecture that the government has supplied. When it comes then to the issue of how we make sure we cross a digital divide and deal with digital inclusion, our role in, is different then. We, we can directly make decisions as a government sector about how we will make sure that no one is left behind. It's not about merely putting out position papers and, and mobilizing sentiment. There's actual specific action that we can take. And again, I'll just say, make one point, and I'm happy to take questions on that. And that point is that these problems created by technology, a divide created by technology, you can only solve so much through technology. And perhaps we need to remain focused on the need for a humanistic view to close that last gap. And there are going to be some transactions, some interactions where a person, vulnerable, elderly, misinformed, or just unsure, can turn up at a counter and on the other side of the counter is a human being. Now that human being as a public service officer may and should have every capability, every digital capability that we can deploy to help them do their job best, but there is still that need for a human connection. If I can then move to COVID-19 and the economy, much has been said, and I don't want to get to, uh, in my remaining three minutes and 49 seconds uh, into the <laughs> details of this, except to pay tribute to the extent to which we came together as a country. We, we, we celebrate rightly the professionalism, the purpose, uh, the pride in their service and their uniform that our frontline workers, healthcare, and otherwise uh, have discharged their duties to keep us all safe, to protect us from this pandemic. We celebrate the fact that we hung together as one country, whether it was the social sector, the community sector, the mobilization, putting food parcels into the elderly's hand, helping people uh, access services in the midst of a circuit breaker. And all this gives me a great degree of hope for 2030 and 2031. Because one of the key things that I think that came out of our pandemic, our response to the, it on a public health front, which is still extant, our response to it on an economic front, we demonstrated not just our cohesion, we didn't fracture around, along lines of race or religion, but we demonstrated our adaptability as both a government as well as a people 
whether it was mask wearing, the circuit measure, uh, uh, circuit breaker measures, or where there were missteps, errors, where there were unforeseen circumstances, we recognized them and we adapted to it and we did so decisively and effectively. That gives me hope for 2030 and 2031 because that sense of unity, cohesion, adaptability and resolve is what really we will need in order to deal with some of the bigger problems that are going to face us in the next decade, such as the overwhelming threat of climate change, where you will need to mobilize our entire country, have mindset change and policy change and get that down to an operational change as well. So that gives me hope for thinking through who we are today and who we might be in 2030. Some things are not going to change. In 2030, we're still going to be a globally connected city that needs to be open to ideas, people, talent, as well as data and finance from around the world. In 2030, our sense of self, already strong today through those lenses that I've already talked about, are going to be even stronger. And that is something to be celebrated. Because it will mean then that the values that have informed our sense of self today have been at appropriately and adequately transmitted to the next generation as they grow up in 2030. And we resolve to get to 2030 our way, learning the lessons from around the world, but situating it for our context. Which brings me to the PAP. The PAP is nothing if not adaptable. And if you follow the history of our country and the follow the history of our party, you will know that we have pivoted many, many times in response to many, many challenges. Adaptability is at the core of who we are because that allows us then to serve our people and our purpose. We have strength, but we know that the strength that is important to the PAP is not the strength of force or the strength of dominance, but the strength of our connection to our people, the strength of our word and keeping our promises, and most importantly, the strength of our resolve to do what's right for Singapore and for Singaporeans. That adaptability, that strength and that resolve will not change between now and 2030, and I hope that as a result of which we will then keep doing the right things for, for the next nine years, 10 years, from now to 2030, and learn the lessons along the way so that we can do it better with that sense of resolve and benefit from that strength and those types of strengths that I just talked about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Pachacheri. A quick follow-up, you talked about how Singapore will do well because the value system that we have uh, have been passed on from generation to generation. Maybe I can take that up and just uh, do a quick rejoinder on the PAP itself. Uh, and you talked about passing on that sense of resolve, that purpose uh, among the next generation. What are those mechanisms by which you transfer that to the next generation within the party. I mean, you mentioned adaptability, but does that adaptability mean you throw out, you cast out some things in order to get to 2030, 2031? I hope you're not referring to babies and bathwaters. But, um, well, some of that adaptability is on the basis of what we do uh, and how we respond to crises and challenges. Mm -hmm. But we're also a party that refreshes and renews our slate very regularly at every election. Um, somewhere between one quarter and one third of our members of parliament step down and new ones come on board. And that by itself is a, a, a method of refreshing both the worldview and the tools of the party because these members by definition are younger, 
and have a slightly different set of connections with the networks and communities that they serve. That's the, the opportunity for change. But then the mechanisms through which we uh, move people into posts, have people understudy, and have people uh, work as, as groups uh, is a part of the mechanism then for that transmission of values and purpose across generations. So it's not one or the other. And this idea of a step change, I mean, you know, commentators and the press like the idea of a step change uh, with elections, there is a step change. But in terms of the internal workings of the party and the internal workings of the party as it translates to policy, it's far more of a gradual evolution to adapt to the realities of the day, holding on to your values. Okay, right. So you recruit for values, but you also tap the newer generation for the connections that they bring. You're confident that they would be able to also borrow the connections that the older generation of leaders would have had, or you would lose something? Well, it, it, it's, it has to be a bit of both. You can't, it, nothing is absolute in this matter. The, uh, an outgoing MP will, of course, try to uh, hand over and best, as best they can to the incoming. Okay. But that incoming MP has to then make the relationship work. The grassroots volunteers, the community leaders, the various stakeholders, they're not going to take you on face value because your predecessor said this is a good chap. You need to go out there and convince them that it is so. All right. Thank you for that. Now it's over to uh, Mr. Gerald Giam. Um, share with us your party's vision and uh, what are your concerns for the decade going forward? Well, I'd like to thank uh, the Institute of Policy Studies for inviting me to be at this forum today. And thank you, Dr. Jillian Cole, for moderating our forum today. Uh, thank you very much for all the members of the audience, especially in, including those at home, for taking out your Monday afternoon to spend with us. I joined the Workers' Party three months after my first child was born. And my daughter now is in secondary one, which means this is my 13th year in <laughs> politics. Uh, there have been many ups and downs during this time, but one of the most rewarding activities I would say I have been able to participate in is being able to contribute to three election manifestos of, of my party, uh, which outline the vision and uh, the proposals that we have for a better Singapore. WP's vision for Singapore is for all Singaporeans to achieve their dreams in life, to be able to forge a dynamic economy with more competitive, homegrown firms, and for Singaporeans to work together to build a home that we want. We want to have an accountable democracy with robust institutions which outlast any political party. There are many conditions needed to achieve this vision. Our families need to be resilient to weather the storms of life. Schools need to prepare our students for life not just exams. Our social safety nets need to assure citizens that someone will catch them if they fall. Our companies need an environment to thrive so that they can provide rewarding jobs for our workers. And we as a nation need to embrace a diversity of views and encourage robust but responsible debate about the way forward. Our common goal is to achieve a better quality of life for all Singaporeans and for life to improve for each successive generation. Most Singaporeans already enjoy a good quality of life. But for some, 
life is still quite gangko or difficult. We meet these Singaporeans during our house visits, during our meet the people sessions, and other contacts that they make with us. For a few of them, their situations might be a result of bad decisions, like committing a crime. But for most, they struggle despite their best efforts to improve their lives. We need to better understand them without judging them, and find more ways to help them. We should do this not just to achieve justice and equality, but because our collective happiness, prosperity, and progress of our, as, as, as a nation depends on all Singaporeans having a share in our success. Now, meritocracy is often touted as one of the guiding principles of our nation, although it's not in our pledge, neither is it in our national anthem. Meritocracy is a good guiding principle for combating corruption, cronyism, and nepotism. But I believe it leads to suboptimal outcomes if every citizen is seen through the lens of their abilities and achievements. Do we practice this type of meritocracy with our children? If our child comes home with bad grades, do we make him sleep in a smaller room or eat only Maggie Mee for dinner? Yet this is what we take as a given in our society. If you don't earn as much, you have to settle for a poorer quality of life. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not asking for equal outcomes, but we cannot be content with providing only equal opportunities, because not everybody may be able to, to, to seize those opportunities, because there may be complex factors working against them. In the race of life, some people start 10 meters ahead of the, of the starting line, whereas others start 20 meters behind. Some may have their path cleared for them, while others have to leap over high hurdles all the way. Some may have good coaches and mentors, whereas others may have none. But in a meritocracy, we are rewarded solely for our achievements. Yet, we are a nation, not a corporation. We are each our brother's keeper. We need to pick each other up and finish this race together. The problems we face today are more complex than ever before. There are so many factors to take into account, so many more stakeholders to consult. There are also legacy issues stemming from previous policy approaches. So complex problems require deeper brainstorming to come up with solutions. These solutions may not only come from the government, neither do they come only from academia, civil society, or political parties. They require the contributions from all stakeholders. This can come, only come about if all stakeholders, including the government, are prepared to listen, explain themselves clearly, and adjust their position where necessary. This is not a game show to see who has the best idea and can hit the buzzer first. It is also not a fairy tale where there's a hero and a villain the villain being the person who opposes your point of view and must be demolished. Those who hold different views do not deserve to be called names or accused of impure motives. All stakeholders should be collaborating, not competing with each other, to find optimal solutions to the challenges that we face. Unfortunately, the headlines 
are dominated by negative examples of how other countries muddle their way through problems. Some powerful countries are allowing political tribalism to tear themselves apart, while others are suppressing all dissenting voices and creating a pressure cooker which could explode in the future. We in tiny Singapore have an opportunity to show the world a better way to respect each other and resolve our differences. In a post-pandemic world, it is more vital than ever that we make a greater effort to craft a new chapter in our history without being inhibited by our preference for the familiar past. I thank you for hearing me out and I look forward to taking your questions later. Thank you, Mr. Kiam. What an impassioned plea for coming together. From where you sit and within your party, what are some barriers to um, your notion that we would have, firstly, an accountable democracy, and secondly, where we are a democracy where the adversary is not torn apart, but respected and honoured, and where all stakeholders can have a voice. What, what, what to you are one or two things that, from your point of view, need to be dealt with, whether you're drawing from examples of the past or whether you're envisioning uh, something in the future? Thank you for that question. I, I think the answer actually lies in what I mentioned earlier. An accountable democracy, a democracy is not just about elections every five years. I'm sure we all know that. Democracy requires everybody's participation, and it also requires the, 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 the government in power to be willing to listen and to accommodate different viewpoints and to be able to um, accept that there would be differences, there would be opposition. But to answer your second question, how do we prevent ourselves from tearing, us, tearing us ourselves apart? Each actor, and the actor could be a political party, it could be an individual, needs to see that, needs to have that sense of responsibility that we want what is best for our country, not what is best for our tribe or our party, but what is best for our country. I think if everybody works towards that goal and everybody has that mindset going forward, there's no limit to actually how much we can achieve in terms of having an accountable democracy and in terms of having progress in our nation. Because the challenges that we are facing are so much more difficult than ever before. Okay. And we need to make sure that we harness the brain power of our entire population to solve these challenges. Right. What you have not mentioned is the fact that we now have a leader of the opposition, a role that is being played by your secretary general. Um, is that a symbol and gesture to you of a greater acceptance of the role of political opposition in Singapore today since July 2020, and therefore part of that uh, spirit that you are talking about? I mean, you would be best placed to respond to that uh, and tell us what WP thinks of that move uh, to institute the role of the leader of the opposition and have Mr. Pritam Singh uh, take on that position. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the short answer is yes, it, it does go to some extent. But I think uh, more important than that is the message that the people of Singapore have sent uh, to, to, uh, in the during the elections. 
and how they voted and how they, how they selected their, their representatives. I think that more than, ever, than anything else that either the government or the opposition can do is an indication of our progress, our political progress as a nation. And I, I believe that the credit really should go to the people for having this open-mindedness, this willingness to engage through the political process in order to see that change that we want as a nation. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Giam, for that. I think we should turn the floor over now to Ms. Pua. Ms. Pua, again, you're an NCMP. Uh, one of the speakers in our forums uh, over in the, I think it was the third day, uh, Professor Chan Heng Chi said that the NCMP scheme is uh, um, an example of a political sandbox that many years ago to allow for greater diversity of voice and views in Parliament. And that's the role you play now. We'd be very happy to hear your own take on that. But before that, tell us what the PSP is thinking about as it looks forward to 2030, 2031, especially in the midst of this very uh, consequential COVID-19 pandemic. Ms. Pua, you have 10 minutes. Thank you. Um, first of all, I would like to thank IPS for giving me the opportunity to be here and yeah. to particip participate in a discussion about our future. Um, I will leave specifics to the Q&A later because 10 minutes is not enough time. So I would like to spend this time um, to talk about something more generic and it relates to the topic in an earlier forum, uh, the soul of Singapore. I wasn't present at that discussion but based on the reports I've seen, um, discussions revolved around culture, community, sports, shared memories, etc. I felt that an important component was not talked about, and that is the role that our politics play in shaping our national soul. And this is an area I feel I could perhaps contribute to the discussion. Let me explain why I think politics play an important role in shaping the soul of Singapore. Our politics defines us and shapes our soul in a very significant way. It cuts across all sectors and all communities. It is a result of our collective action, and it is the face that we present to the world. When Singapore was deliberating on whether we should allow casinos to operate here, um, that was one of the defining moments. There was a huge debate on this matter. Those in favour cited economic gains and the jobs that they would bring into Singapore. Um, those against argued on the basis of ethics and the social cost arising from gambling addiction. In Singapore's short history, uh, there was a time when we cracked down on gambling and spared no efforts to eradicate it from our landscape. And before the entry of casinos, um, it had become widely accepted that gambling is harmful for us and we took great pride in our success in decimating it. So the change in official stance was a significant reversal. In the trade-off between material gains and ethics and social cost, the choice that we made defined us. Another example would be issues like money laundering, which involves a trade-off between financial gains for us on the one hand and rewarding crime on a global basis on the other. Again, that choice defines us. 
if we were to adopt positions for selfish gains, then ours will not be a pretty soul. The soul of a person is not visible. When we talk about a person's soul, we're talking about his values and principles that we see him exhibit in the way he lives his life. In the same way, the soul of a nation is reflected in the values and principles that we as a country consistently act upon in practice, not just in discussions or speeches. Values and principles are what they are only if we're willing to pay the price for them. But it is in the paying of the price that we declare to the world what we truly value. I hope I've managed to convince you why politics is an important component of the soul of Singapore. Next, I'll move on to talk about where I hope our political development is headed. The first thing that I'd like to see changed is this culture of fear in politics. That's an issue that PSP has brought up a few times before. I contested in the general election in 2011 and then again in 2020. So what I'm sharing is based on my own personal experience, um, interacting with residents and with other party members, and comparing the experience while campaigning in 2011 and in 2020. In terms of the fears of the consequence of voting for opposition, I find that the level of fear has decreased significantly. What was interesting um, was that I began encountering more of such questions from new citizens. But in terms of the fears of joining an alternative political party, the fear of running for election on an opposition ticket, that unfortunately is still very much alive. I was frequently asked, whether there were any adverse effects on my work after joining opposition. Most were worried about their career prospects. Employees worry about promotions. Businessmen worry about contracts from the establishment. Academics worry about tenures and uh, contract renewals. But this should not have been. We should not have to worry about such things when we want to participate in politics. Responsible people should not have to worry about making known their stand. Such fears make us less than we can be. And if concerned citizens hesitate to speak up honestly in their own country, what kind of soul are we talking about here? I've also often been asked, do I have fears about joining an alternative party? Of course I do. I look at the precedents, and I fear risking bankruptcy with one careless word. So why do it? In the words of a friend who explained to me why he would always support candidates from alternative parties, he said that in Singapore, there are many reasons for joining the ruling party, but there is only one for joining an alternative party, for the love of the country. When I was 18, I went skiing with a group of uh, university friends. We were all beginners. It was our first skiing trip. When we arrived at the ski resort, we discovered that, oh, there were different kinds of slopes. There were slopes for beginners, slopes for intermediates, and so on. So naturally, we made our way to the slopes for beginners. And in the beginning, things were rather smooth. The, the slope was uh, nice and gentle, and we had fun and laughter. And then we came to a part of the slope that was much steeper 
than the rest. We stopped and stared at the slope. Um, sure not. Is this slope for beginners? And then we pawed over the map again to look for alternative routes, but nope, no alternative routes. I decided to hack it and just try my luck. Um, and I managed to make it to the bottom of the slope safely. And after that, everyone else made their way down with very minor incidents along the way. I learned a very simple lesson that day. If I can overcome my own fears, that encourages people around me to do the same. And hence my foray into politics in 2011. Many things have changed since then, and recent developments have been encouraging. The driver for change in political development has always been in the hands of voters, and that is as it should be in a democracy. In the recent GE, the voters have, made it, have expressed clearly their desire for greater diversity of viewpoints. Despite the changes to the NCMP scheme, that assured voters of alternative voices in Parliament, regardless of the outcome of the election, the number of elected opposition MPs increased to 10. It signified a higher level of readiness for change than was previously expected. And this has put in motion further developments in our political landscape. As Gillian has pointed out, we now have an official leader of the opposition, with state resources given. And alternative parties are also receiving more invitations than in the past to events to offer a different perspective on issues, and this is a case in point. I dream of a day in Singapore when powers are more evenly distributed, when my children and other people's children are engaged citizens participating actively and without fear in robust discussions about issues affecting all our lives, including thorny issues like racial relations, which are tricky but important. After more than 50 years of nation-building, do we still need to classify ourselves along racial lines? Are we, are we all just Singaporeans? In the last GE, WP's Aljunit team won with three minority candidates on the slate. Do we still need GRCs? Do we still want self-help groups along racial lines? In what way, precisely, are we not ready for a non-Chinese prime minister? We need to address issues head-on in order to move forward and make progress, not get stuck in a rut. And on that note, I conclude my opening remarks and look forward to a fruitful Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Poa. That's uh, <laughs> a bit uncomfortable for you to be talking about the casino decision, <laughs> given where we are. But I think uh, that's the point that you're trying to make, that we should be ready to talk about uncomfortable um, policy decisions that will come and that will go and uh, that will shape Singapore perhaps not permanently, uh, because there's the political process where you can relook uh, certain issues, discuss them again, and see at what point things need to change. But having said that, let's go back to the casino decision since you are 
familiar with it and your party has talked about it a lot. Um, what did you think of the social safeguards that were put in place so that maybe in Singapore, which has to navigate a very difficult world, as you talk about trade-offs, there's balances to be made, uh, but yet sometimes you could have your cake and eat it, no? So as an innovative uh, thinker and as a politician and you yourself with a background in public service, um, what about that issue of the casino decision? And today, what are some of the more difficult policy questions you are thinking about and your party is thinking about where the trade-offs seem too difficult to be able to find this balance between, you know, one good and the other, achieving, you know, um, things that we all want to do together, but bearing the cost as well. So, do you have innovative solutions, or you're saying we grit our teeth and we go forward for a common purpose? Ms. Poir? Right. Um, thank you for that question. Um, in, in talking about trade-offs, a lot of the times, the choice that we make is actually a result of our value system and our priorities, which to us is more important. There is no um, definite right or wrong answers. So uh, different, uh, different people will come up to different conclusions. Yes. So when you talk about the safeguards that have been put in place, that comes after uh, the, the judgment has been made that the economic gains outweighs um, the social costs that will come, you know, um, broken families, uh, the effect on the children of those families. And, and that is actually, in the end, a judgment call. So I, I would say that different parties would probably make different decisions on the same issues, on the same considerations, just based on different priorities. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Any current day contemporary policy decision that uh, you're looking at where there are difficult challenges or trade-offs? Uh, well, actually, um, I think that there would be quite... Um, the favourite one is immigration, of course. Uh, sorry, say that the, again. The favourite one is immigration and foreign labour, the ratio of foreign labour to local here. Yes, that is, of one course, is familiar, the, the one that's familiar with your party too. Topic. So again, that involves a trade-off between um, economic growth uh, by increasing our labour input and versus um, the social cost to the country in terms of congestions, in terms of um, um, frictions, social frictions and, and so on. And we, we are seeing actually increasing sensitivity uh, from the population um, in relations to the number of foreigners that we have now in, in, our, in our country. Um, I think that Again, it is a matter of priorities, just like uh, giving an example. Um, let's say you own a HDB flat. You have a spare room. Um, if you rent it out, you increase your income. But at the same time, if you have tenants walking in and out of your home, there is an uh, uh, erosion of privacy. And so, so as an individual, you make that choice. Do, we bring, do you bring that tenant in so that you increase your income or would you treasure more um, your privacy and forego that effect on your family life? Uh, sorry, forego that income um, for a better quality 
of life and for family life as well. So um, I, I feel that in our, our party stand would actually tend more to um, place greater importance on the social factors and less so on economic ones. Okay, thank you. Just point of information, IPS was very involved in the discussion on the casino uh, um, question. And um, in fact, when the request for proposals was put out by the government uh, before a decision was made, the specifications of that request already stated what the social safeguards would be. Um, so uh, whether it was entry levies, whether it was self-exclusion and exclusion of family members, and also the size of the gaming area. So I think that was uh, one occasion where um, the social safeguards were there in place as much as uh, the political and econ the economic benefits was, were, were. Yeah. Right, so anyway, I just a <laughs> point of information. Thank you, Ms. Poir. <laughs> right, so now it's over to our audience, actually. Uh, just a reminder to those who are tuning online, please feel free to share your questions on pigeonhole and we'll try and pick it up. So uh, are you ready, panelists? Okay, let me go with the one which has the most votes at the moment, very democratic, 13 votes. The first question is, how can we implement the concept of meritocracy in a more equitable manner? I think this was brought up by Mr. Gerald Yam. So Gerald, would you like to just go for it first and then we'll allow the other panelists to follow up. What did you have in mind bearing that there have been lots of tweaks to the way we operate meritocracy um, over the past decade? Go ahead, don't worry, yeah. Yeah, it will come on. Thank you for that question. Um, I, I think uh, this is a, probably a very hot topic now because uh, we're going through uh, changes in our education system where uh, meritocracy is, is coming to the fore and, and there's a lot of focus on whether or not we are veering too much on that. But I just want to come back to what I, I said earlier on, which was that the first point was that meritocracy it may be something that we talk about a lot as our, one of our guiding principles, but it wasn't something that our, our founders, at least uh, as articulated in the pledge, were overly fix fixated on. And I think that should guide us as well right now, is that meritocracy is important because we don't want corruption, we don't want contracts to be given out uh, on the basis of, of who you know rather than, rather than what you know. But at the same time, we, cannot, we should not take things to the extreme. And I think um, in many ways, we, and we're not alone, a lot of East Asian countries have done the same, have taken meritocracy, especially the academic aspect of meritocracy, to a very far extreme, such that for, many, uh, for, for some generations in the past, have felt sidelined because they did not achieve the so-called required level of academic excellence. And, um, and I'm glad the government has recognized that and is moving away from, from that sole focus on academic um, excellence. But at the same time, it is very much a work in progress. We have to continuously look at how we can not just provide those equal opportunities for everyone to be able to achieve the, 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 the achievements that they, they, they want to dream towards, but we need to also track the outcomes. And if the outcomes show that certain groups of people are not able to keep up and not able to achieve the same level of outcomes, 
despite the opportunities uh, being given, despite the, the conditions being uh, set, then we have to look at to see whether or not, firstly, have we actually given them equal opportunities? Do they really have the same opportunities? And secondly, even if they do have equal opportunities, have we done enough to clear the hurdles in front of them so that they don't have to leap over hurdles while others are running, running a straight race without any hurdles at all? Okay. So I think uh, this is very much a work in progress. Again, I don't, I don't propose to have all the solutions, and uh, neither do I think the government has all the solutions. We have to work together as, as a nation to determine what is, what is really important. And I'll, I'll just give an example um, of how the people also need to be involved in this, in this conversation. Um, many parents, I'm a, young, I'm a young parent, or not so young anymore, but uh, I'm a parent of, of young children. And uh, I want my kids to, to be able to achieve good results in school, do well in school. But I'm seeing a lot of, of parents who, they want their kids to go to a certain school, not necessarily because that school has better teachers or, or, or uh, has better resources, but because they want them to be in an environment where they will be, they'll be uh, motivated to study hard and to and to achieve their best and achieve their full potential. And I think that's, an, that's, a, that's, an, that's, a, uh, that's a good goal to have, but if we take it to the extreme where we downplay the, the efforts that many neighborhood schools are, are making to try and uplift their students, and, or, or, we, or the parents say that, oh, I don't want my child to go to this school, I want him to go to another school, and uh, I, I want to make an appeal for, for my child to be transferred to another school just because, uh, just because the, the, the school is maybe is not as competitive. I think um, that is what we need to move away from as a society, okay. where we are thinking of only uh, academic excellence as a, a benchmark of, of, of your meritocratic achievements. Okay. So just very quickly, in terms of dealing, softening the edges of meritocracy, you're still focused on education, though. Do you see any areas in the rest of Singapore, whether it's uh, family, you know, uh, work, uh, where you, you, you want some of this to be changed? Well, very much so. I mean, education is, is, is uh, the most obvious uh, okay. area that we need to work right. on. Uh, but in, in, the, in the workplace also, we, are, we, are, we need to ensure that, for example, the measures in which people are used, let's say in their performance appraisals, whether our performance appraisals fair or are they biased towards a certain group of people, okay. that's something that we need to, en to ensure is, is, uh, is, is fair as well. All right. and so it's, it's not just, because our traditional approach to meritocracy is that if you get the good grades, whether it's in school, or whether it's in your performance appraisal, therefore you must be good. But we don't realize that there are many other factors that go into that grade and, and achieving that grade. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Hazel, would you like to jump in? Yeah. You yourself run an education company, yes. Smart Lab, so uh, you might feel that this is something that uh, you'll have to respond to too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would like to. Um, I think to, to um, talk about uh, add on the point about why it's so focused on education. I think when we worry about meritocracy not exactly working out as well as we would like it to, um, we're more concerned about those from the less advantaged background. And, and for them, education is the social leveler. All right. So, so it's, uh, it's why 
is very important and a lot of the focus is in our education. Are we ensuring that meritocracy works in our education system? Right. So um, apart from like trying to make the starting point as equal as we can possibly possibly do, um, we should also be working at narrowing down inequalities so that that um, difference isn't so stuck to begin with. Okay. And also, I, I feel that um, we should be placing less emphasis on grades and paper qualification and be more open to other paths um, to success and recognizing achievements in, you know, for example, skills rather than uh, academic qualifications. I think that that will address the issue a bit more. Okay, recognizing and paying for that, right? <laughs> okay, um, over to you, uh, Dr. Patucheri. Um, over the decade, we've had a nuancing of the concept, continuous meritocracy rather than just exam meritocracy, uh, you know. Um, and a compassionate meritocracy where uh, far more social support is given to uh, those at the other end of the scale. So what do you have to say about this question of, uh, can it be a little more com sort of uh, the uh, sharper ends and of, of meritocracy? What can we do over the next decade to do better? Thanks, Julian. You know, I was going to begin by saying that uh, both Mr. Giam and Ms. Poir had essentially articulated what the government's already doing, uh, but then you did as well. Uh, so, yeah, and I tried to keep up. Thank you. Um, we may, I would summarize... Clearly, it. it's not gotten through, so I would I summarize it a better job. Look, there's, it's not about an absolute meritocracy. Uh, the, the, the purpose of meritocracy is to remove the, the influence of corruption, uh, remove the, the influence of uh, inheritance, as a primary determinant of outcome, or, or and in, in some cases, wealth. And so, race. And race. So where, where meritocracy has a useful outcome, then it's a better tool than any of these other factors. And I think we largely agree on that. But it's not a perfect tool. No, no tool is. And so in its application, we do need to work out where it perhaps hasn't quite served the best interest. And as my colleagues on stage have said, you have to soften the edges and provide other pathways and educate people that there are other ways of looking at the problem rather than a purist, absolutist, meritocratic ideal. Because the way in which you me measure that meritocracy may, may also be imperfect. Uh, the second point I'd make, so first is, it's not about an absolutist vision of meritocracy. That was never the intention, and I don't believe it is so today. The second point I would make is that there are many domains where that is not the way in which we approach the matter. And especially when it comes to community um, efforts, uh, efforts to do with the vulnerable, uh, efforts to do with people who are, in a way, uh, easily excluded, where mm -hmm. once there is a clear indication of need in that community, in that group, in that home, in that rental block, in that section of our population, we apply assistance. And it is assistance on the basis that it will help and you don't have to compete for it. Um, and the third point I would make is that in any of these tools, we will have to continually refine our process going forward uh, and, and make it work best in terms of outcomes. Uh, so I, I don't disagree with the points made. Uh, it's a matter of execution, uh, yet you have to get this right. Yeah. 
And also there's a concept of continuous meritocracy. Do you want to spell out what that might mean? These are your fellow panelists are from the civil service previously. So how do we see meritocracy being applied uh, across time? Well, uh, I think the point... We talked about the credentialism, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I would, I, would, I would just, you know, <laughs> talk about uh, continuous meritocracy. The, uh, well, have, having been from the civil service, uh, that's not a problem for them then to stand as members of the opposition. I mean, if that's not meritocracy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is no, uh, there is no label associated on that basis. Um, is it I, okay? I'm being a little bit, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing <laughs> the envelope on, uh, right. on there a little bit. But I think the purpose of continuous meritocracy is to accept that at the point of entry into any system, your measure is imperfect, whether it's the civil service, whether it's your education, whether it's your job. And so it then behooves the employer, the organization, the policy owner to refine that process over time and look out for people that are doing well despite whatever their starting circumstances might be. It is that intent of an outcome to do well on behalf of the student, your employee, uh, your, uh, your constituent, your neighbor. All right. So at the highest level, this is a question that's an extension on the meritocracy uh, issue with 14 votes to all panelists do you think a non-Chinese can be the Prime Minister of Singapore? <laughs> Does continuous meritocracy apply to that? May seem like a trivial thing, but it would really show the spirit of dot, dot, dot. And I would link it to then the next question that's got nine votes, that race shouldn't matter, although it still seems that it does. So, who would like to go first? It's your choice, Gillian. You're the moderator. Okay, Dr. Pichicherry, <laughs> this is the one that really hits you squarely well, as I, the PAP. Yeah. <laughs> but race does matter, and I think the question uh, posed, there's another question, I think it's not the one that's on the screen, yeah. was that race continues to matter, and um, surveys done by IPS themselves suggest that that is so. So, well, I think uh, I would fully subscribe to the idea that I wish it were not so. Okay, 10 years down the road then, Well, 2030. You know, I, I think it would be hard to predict. You, I don't know that if you asked uh, the founding generation in 1965, whether by the time you got to 2021, whether race would matter more or matter less. Um, I think 10 years is a short time okay. by some time frame. Then what are you doing to scrap it? What are you doing to do better then? Yeah, well, we're doing many things. Uh, <laughs> It's central to much of what we do in terms of our discourse within the education system. Um, we have a whole bunch of research in partnership with IPS. Uh, we have NGOs like OnePeople.sg, which I happen to be heavily involved in. Uh, and we're trying to do several things, which is, but at, the, at its heart is to try to understand and intervene on something that is essentially a personal bias, a personal stereotype which people don't necessarily reveal or express adequately, but when in aggregate across a population has effects and we are familiar with those effects. Okay. So I think the answer to the first question is it will be up to the people of Singapore to decide ultimately um, about this matter. And I do hope that our racial harmony progresses to the point where when people talk about a non-Chinese prime minister, it's not about an icon of resetting or an icon of reimagining, uh, as in the question that was uh, put up on the screen, mm -hmm. but on the basis of that person's ability to do the job. Right. And that will be for the Singaporeans to decide. 
Well, Ms. Pua, you are very courageous to say we can scrap the GRC system, or we should. To whom does race matter? Who I'm needs there to be racial categories? And who needs to argue that a prime minister should be Chinese or should not be Chinese? Where does from, this from come my from? perspective? I think it's pretty obvious what my position on that is. Um, from my perspective, I think we are, are already ready for a non-Chinese prime minister, and the only reason we are not ready is PAP is not ready. Mr. Gum. Well, I think from the conversations I've had with many Singaporeans, including Chinese Singaporeans, I don't see any view expressed that suggests that they will not be ready for someone who is capable, honest, and is able to be a good leader to be the prime minister of the country. Um, of course, it's important to understand that in the Singapore context, the prime minister is not directly elected by the people, uh, just like how the president is elected the president uh, is elected directly by the people. The prime minister is elected or selected by his or her own party. So it is really the decisions of the individual parties whether they want to, whether they feel that in their electoral calculations, in their internal uh, political calculations, that they want to, to field a non-Chinese uh, as, their, as their party leader, as their secretary general. Um, the Workers' Party has made our choice uh, in recent years. In 2018, we elected uh, a non-Chinese as, as our Secretary General. And uh, it is not the first time we've had a non-Chinese uh, leader as well. And uh, I think we've had a relative credible degree of uh, electoral success uh, with, uh, with our, our current uh, uh, party leader, who is not a Chinese. And, um, as I think Hazel pointed out earlier, in the Aljunit slate, we have uh, three non-Chinese in that slate. Uh, and I would add that the two other Chinese are Puranakan and don't speak Chinese very well. So, um, and it, it, so if, if, if race and language were such an important factor for such an important constituency, um, we would have made sure that we, we, uh, we filled a, a, an all-Chinese slate, or at least a four, four Chinese in the slate. But we made our calculations that this was the, the suitable slate of candidates that, that would be able to serve the residents of Arjunit well, and therefore we chose that, that slate of candidates, uh, regardless of race. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Puttucheri, you said that it will be up to Singaporeans to decide when we reach that point from the PAP's point of view. Um, so let me go to the next question, which has 18 votes. I mean, do you wait for people to lead or the government to lead? And on different issues, you might have different answers, but the question by Christopher is, state takes a leading role in so much of lives here. Where should it lean in more? Where should it do less and step back and let others lead? So why don't you kick off on that uh, and, and then we'll go down. Well, it's an important question and there is no clean answer. It, you'd have to address this differently depending on what the problem was and uh, what the impacts and outcomes would be. I think where it comes to matters of uh, securing the public safety, uh, securing the public health, defense, I think you'd have no argument that the state has to, has to discharge its duty in order to get those things done. Uh, 
but there's plenty of other areas where the ground up initiatives, community initiatives, uh, non-governmental organizations, civil sector organizations can and today actually do play a very effective part. Um, but the, neither, neither side, actually there are no sides in this, uh, but neither side of that divide, state mm -hmm. versus uh, the private sector, does this on its own. Uh, whenever you're looking for an intervention from the state, public health being a, an example, it is effective because you're able to mobilize people and rally them around this cause. When you're coming from a civil society perspective, you are effective when you have engagement with the state and you can bring along legislative change or regulatory change or attract grants and investments from state funding as well. It's always a partnership. Okay. It's always a partnership. So it's not about step back, step in. It's find the right partnerships and find the right partners in order to progress on this together. Is that your party's orientation? Because JT asks, what will your party do to work more with Singaporeans and citizen-led NGOs? Look, for the last 10 years, we've been organizing conversations, dialogues, challenges, uh, call for grants. We, we, we have uh, no hesitation in saying, this is our view of how things must be. And we have not just said it, we've put it into action. Okay. Mr. Well, Gia. Yeah, I think... Um, the, the question is not as an easy yes or no answer and whether the state should take a bigger role. It depends on which area. And it also depends on what philosophy you want to approach governance. For example, there would be some areas where I think the state should take a bigger role, and there are some areas where the state should step back. Healthcare, social services. I believe the state should take a bigger role in terms of providing those services and relieving the, the financial burdens of the people. But in areas of, let's say, political discourse, uh, civil, civil discourse, I think the state should, should learn to step back and let society sort out its differences on its own. Of course, it doesn't, doesn't mean that the state should just completely hands off and don't get involved at all. But I, I would argue that, that uh, there are some areas in which the state is, is meddling a bit too much in and trying to control too much in terms of uh, uh, overstepping its role. But there are some areas, like, like, I, like I mentioned, social services, which I would like to see the state step up and fund more social services so that there, there, is, there is more equity in our society. Okay. Ms. Pua, what's your response? And to the audience, please get ready. We'll take some questions from the floor after Ms. Pua has responded. Um, to me, I feel that um, the criteria would be the amount of information available. Um, in areas where specialized knowledge is required, um, it would be more appropriate for the government to take the lead, like for example, in areas like uh, defense or fighting terrorism, um, where members of the public do not have access to the enough information to be able to make good decisions. Uh, but in other areas, um, for example, like social norms where such considerations do not apply, then I believe that the government should take a step back and let you know, the people make that decision. Okay. Right. Over to you, live audience, please. Yes, gentlemen in front at table three. Where else? Yes, uh, the person right at the back there, also called table three, but I don't know what region that is. Right at the end. Yeah. Okay. So let's just take those two. Get ready, panelists. 
Okay, my name is uh, Tan Keng Soon from Tan Kiam Foundation. My question for the panelists is this. With this decline in fear, as what Hazel Poir said, would the increase in opposition membership reduce the effectiveness of government? Okay. Wait, uh, before I pass over to you to answer, let me elaborate a bit my fears, you see. You see, the flaw in the democracy, in the one-man-one-vote system that I see in the mature democracies of the West is that it is very hard to impose a painful decision on the, on the public. Sometimes the right policies can be very painful, you see. Okay. So they do not know when, whether they've been power in the long term, and that's point number two. They, they do not know whether they will be in power after the next election. Because, okay. because you have two alternate parties that mm -hmm. alternate in power. So they can't plan for the long term. So now let me give you an example of what I mean. Yeah. Um, what language are we speaking today? We are speaking English because our early generation, our first generation of leaders decided to make English the main language. Now that was a very painful decision for the majority of Singaporeans mm. because at that time most people were Chinese educated and they suddenly have to in order to get jobs, to be proficient in English, you see. Okay. I, I, I read that there were, uh, bus, there were Nanyang graduates who were working as bus conductors. Mm -hmm. So that was very unpopular. But because of the climate of fear, the people didn't participate in opposition politics and the PAP dominated the whole parliament. That allowed them to make a painful decision mm -hmm but benefit us in the long term because that created our national identity. We Thank became you. a Singaporean Singapore. You see? Okay. Thank wait, you, wait. sir. No, I haven't finished yet. There are finished. about have... five more uh, hands up there. Let me, let me finish first, please. <laughs> please. So, so, no pain, no gain. That's what my PE teacher told me, you see. Thank you. So, so mm. um, I'm not saying that uh, I mean, if you look at today, who compare multi-party democracy with India with single-party dictatorship like China, which country did better managing the COVID crisis? Which country's economy developed faster? But don't get me wrong, I don't mean to say that uh, we want to live in a one-party state because China does some very nasty things. They persecute. Muslims, Christians, Falun Gong people, and that's also bad. I don't want that, you see. So what right. we need is the opposition to a, a, weak, a dominant party, but a weak opposition to stick a needle on their back, <laughs> you see. I think that is the golden means, and I think we already achieved that, you see. Thank you, sir. So, oh, okay, All thanks, right. bye. There's somebody yeah. back there? Yes, please. Thank you. Hi. Hi, I'm Jensen from NTU. Uh, Mr. Giam mentioned that there's, uh, there's a support for greater citizen involvement and I personally participated in uh, conversations such as uh, the Emerging Stronger Task Force conversations like what Dr. Putucheri mentioned. Um, I was just wondering, um, there aren't really any follow-ups to some of the proposals that uh, our groups uh, mentioned 
So, um, so as the task force promised collective action, but the current initiatives doesn't seem sufficient. So will the government consider citizen assembly as mentioned in forum eight or nine by one of the profs forum eight. as a means of collective action okay. and for greater participation democracy? Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Jensen. Yeah, I think there are a few more hands. We'll take a, a few more questions. Please. Yes. Get ready. <laughs> thank you. Hi, Janice Cole. Hi, Janice. Um, thank you to the panelists. I just have a question for all three panelists. Um, to Dr. Janil, um, in 2011 at the Kenridge Ministerial Forum, PM Lee had said that a two-party system is not workable in Singapore because we just don't have enough talent for two A teams. In light of the 2020 elections, where it was quite clear that Singaporeans wanted greater opposition presence in Parliament, does the PAP still hold this view? Has it changed moving forward? And of course, to Mr. Giam and Ms. Hazel Poir, um, I believe the PAP has also put forth the idea that a multi-party system in Singapore could present more division amongst society, amongst Singaporeans based on religious and racial lines. Um, could you please respond to this uh, in view of this, uh, our maturing political landscape and how can we mitigate against these um, more you. negative effects? Thank you. Thank you, Janice. One more? Yes, over there. Okay, I don't think the mics are ready. So let's just take those questions. Uh, do you want to start, Dr. Patucheri? No, sure. Yeah. I was about to reach for my microphone. I realize it's clipped <laughs> to me. Um, I, I, maybe I'll start with Ms. Cole's question first. Uh, well, well, however many parties we have, and what is the final equilibrium, it will be decided by the people. I think it's about how people will vote and what are the proposals and uh, offerings made by the party. And, and the people of Singapore will make their decision about what they want as that equilibrium. But I think your question is, what will the PAP do to bring about that equilibrium? And I think my duty as a, as a member of parliament, if I am fielded in a constituency, uh, especially as an incumbent having served there for a while, my, my duty is to fight as hard as possible to do my best for those people that I seek to represent. And I would expect every one of my colleagues that I stand together with to do the same. So on aggregate then, as a party, we should try our best to be the best possible party, and each of us needs to try to be the best possible candidate. I think it would be unconscionable of us to then say, let us weaken our offering deliberately. Let us deliberately do badly by the system in order then to fudge an outcome which may or may not be desirable by Singaporeans. I think our duty is to make the best possible offering, discharge our duty as best as possible. The outcome then, whether it's a multi-party, a two-party, a dominant and a less dominant, an alternating revolving door, and you have examples of this all around the world, that outcome will be decided by our people. 
and I think that is a that is the you know like democracy the least worst possible way of doing it. Okay. It holds on to the right value of making sure that the people choose the outcome. Okay. Then a quick one to Janice: Is there enough talent in Singapore for two great parties? No, I think I've just answered that. I I don't know that there, there is you or there isn't, try. but yep. I would say our job is to try and bring best. in as much of that talent as possible. Uh, okay. And we should compete for that talent just as hard as anybody else. Start off with that, Mr. Giam. Okay, I think regarding our Genesis question, um, whether or not multi-parties uh, will lead to more division, I think that is something that each political party and each uh, political candidate from each party has to make a conscious effort and decision to act responsibly and to act in the interest of the country. I don't think just having multiple parties is automatically going to make sure that everything balances out. There will be good parties, there will be bad parties. And the ultimate judge of this would be the people of Singapore. And we need to be able to allow the people of Singapore to have the necessary information about each of the parties and the candidates so that they can make a considered decision about which party is the most responsible to be able to take our country forward and to take our country forward together. Now, um, shall I answer the other questions yes. also from yes. the other? Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, I think I'll address uh, Mr. Tan Keng Soon's question um, about, um, I think he kind of juxtaposed the climate of fear that existed in the early days of our independence with being able to advance certain unpopular policies. Um, I, I'm, I'm not in a position to scrutinize every, or to understand each individual uh, citizen's decisions at that point of time, but I would, I would think, firstly, that in those early days, the people of Singapore were willing to make some painful sacrifices for the sake of our survival as a country. Okay, so it may not have been entirely because they were muzzled, that's why they they, they did not voice their objections to, to certain unpopular policies. But secondly, and more importantly, I feel, in, in today's context, the question of, about painful decisions that need to be taken is going to come out again and again because there are going to be many different painful decisions that both the government as well as the opposition have to take. Because all this will impact not just the progress as a nation, but also their popularity as a party. I feel that if parties and politicians act in the interest of the country, they would, they would make the effort to explain their policies, they would make the, the effort to persuade the electorate to, to agree with their point of view and to, and to uh, um, address some of the concerns and fears that they have, and most importantly, to listen. So I think when you have a situation where the whether it's the ruling party or the opposition, is willing to listen and to take on board the, the views, not necessarily accept it all, but to explain why we don't, why we don't agree with this view and why we think uh, we should go forward. I think that is where it's beneficial for our whole country. And again, it comes down to the electorate choosing the right parties and the right uh, politicians to be able to make those kind of decisions. Okay. I, I, can I just say, I find yeah. myself in complete agreement with Mr. Giam on this yeah. matter, um, which is not a situation the two of us find ourselves <laughs> in very often. Uh, so I just wanted to say that. Uh, and to add that whether or not 
the balance works out one way or the other. Uh, leadership means that you need to do what you need to do. Uh, and you have to deal with the environment that you're in, not the environment as you would wish it. And that includes adapting and changing where necessary your policies or your interventions in the face of whatever has happened. Okay. And we have several examples of that. Right. Sorry to interrupt. No, I didn't want no to problem. go ahead. Thank please. you for sharing that. I just <laughs> wanted to yeah, yeah. shout out to Gerald that I've yeah. right. what he um, said. On, yeah, on that question about um, whether multi party would make us more divided, I think I agree with what uh, Gerald said. It's actually up to us um, to determine what kind of politics. Uh, we can have in Singapore. Uh, we have been having more representations uh, mm -hmm. in Parliament, and I don't, um, I don't think there has been any increase in uh, divisiveness. And I think we should keep an open mind uh, and evolve our own model. Um, on on the question about the one-party system, I, I feel that um, in the days when the way forward is more clear-cut, when we are more confident that this is the way to progress, um, a, a one-party system actually is more e efficient. You can move forward, you can progress a lot faster, there is um, uh, faster decision-making, and um, uh, you can implement things a lot faster. Uh, but when we are faced with a climate where the choices are not so clear, the way forward is uncertain, then it is too risky to continue to rely on a one-party system. That is the same as putting all our eggs in one basket. Okay. I feel it, should, it would always make sense to have a backup plan. Thank you. I think we have to wrap, so maybe I could just get some closing remarks, but Dr. Pichateri, when you, when you end, please remember to respond to closing the loop on emerging stronger. Okay, so uh, Ms. Poir, do you want to kick us off? We go in reverse order. Closing Final remarks. comments. Um, what do you want uh, the audience to uh, take away? Of course, there was one very tempting question there for PSP. Where would PSP be post Tan Cheng Bok? Close on that. Well, um, I think that um, PSP is a very new party. Um, as we go around campaigning, it is still very, very obvious to us that a lot of um, a lot of people still do not know us. Uh, more of them know Dr. Tan, and so I, I feel that um, in the near future, um, we are still going to need Dr. Tan to lead the party. Um, I know that there have been, um, uh, one of the questions that we frequently face is actually about um, the fact that Dr. Tan is um, 80 years old and, um, you know, what's the, the party's renewal plan. Um, but I feel that in age is actually more a state of mind than it is about physical state. If you are receptive to new ideas, you're open to trying new things, then you are young. And if you're set in your ways and unwilling to try new things, then regardless of, bi of your biological age, you are old. And from my experience, uh, Dr. Tan is very receptive to new ideas. He's always willing to try new things. And, and if you look at the way he took to Instagram and TikTok, I think he's younger than me. So um, I, I feel 
or rather I hope that Dr. Tan will still be around for a while. And uh, in the meantime, of course, we, we do have um, younger members in, in the party. Uh, in the election, you have seen that we do have other younger candidates. Um, but as I said, the party is young, so this, uh, we are going to need some time um, to develop our people further. And um, over time, um, we should be seeing some changes. Thank you, Ms. Yeah, Poir. Thank you. Over to Mr. Giam okay. for your parting shots. Right. You're going to be able to work with each other, PSP and WP? I'll, I'll address that, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. I think I'll, I'll, I'll make my closing remarks based on one of the questions I saw earlier, which I thought was very good. It's a pity it wasn't asked. Wasn't, yes. We weren't able to, to get to it. It was regarding competition versus cooperation. And uh, I think the question was whether or not I, I said that we want to cooperate, but then we are competing in a political uh, arena with the, with the PAP. I think the two can actually coexist, and I think Singapore would be the better for it. Um, competition brings about better outcomes very often, especially for consumers. You see when, comp when, when companies compete with each other, they spur each other on to do better for the, for the consumers. And in Singapore's case, the consumers are the people of Singapore. So let's, if we can see it as us being different, uh, different companies competing for, for market share, but at the same time, trying to improve our products so that uh, the, the consumers will have a better deal overall. I think that's a win for Singapore. And uh, I think in the earlier forum, on the business forum, there were the, the speakers were mentioning about how companies in Singapore need to work together more as Team Singapore and, and hunt as a pack when they go overseas. And I think that's the attitude that we, we should take in Singapore. That's the attitude that we in the Workers' Party take, definitely in terms of uh, working with the government to, to bounce ideas off them and, and to spur them on to, to maybe uh, see our point of view and to, to change their policies for the better of the, of the country. And I think that's the approach that we want to take to politics. We don't want to just fire pot shots or to try and uh, uh, ask gotcha questions to the, okay. to the ministers in parliament. Any, anything that we ask is with the intent of finding out more information so that we can propose uh, better policies and bounce, bounce policy ideas of them so that they can consider the policies. And if, if the policy works out and it, it, it's, it's uh, for the good of Singapore, I think that's where Singapore wins. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Giam. Dr. Patricheri. Thanks, Julian. Uh, thank you to all the various people for asking your questions, whether you're here or at home, and to my colleagues, uh, uh, Ms. Poir and Mr. Giam as well, for joining us today. Um, I find myself in agreement with much that uh, Mr. Jao Kiam has said again. You know, we're here, uh, thankfully, in a relatively safe environment, despite what's happening around us. Pandemic is still raging. The effects of COVID-19 are still ongoing. And we are discussing some of the highest ideals and aspirations for our future in 2030. Uh, we find that we are able to do so without rancor, without bile and bitterness, despite being on different sides of a political divide, despite having been in competitions in the general election, uh, despite the fact that we will spar in the future in Parliament over any number of issues. And we do so for the same purpose, which is to make things better for Singapore and Singaporeans. Uh, we, the, the parallel that actually there are many things about where we are today in 2021. Yeah. <laughs> that I hope in 2030, 2031, we will look back and say, look, we were already in a fairly 
bright spot in 2021, whether it's from our public health perspective in our response to COVID-19, whether it's from the economic perspective, all the different interventions that we've put in place over this year, whether it's from the political perspective that whatever criticisms may have been lobbed in the past at the GRC system, the NCMP system, the NMP system, well, the reality is that we do have a, a diversity of voices in the House and without. We do have an ecosystem of civil society organizations, community organizations, that don't all have a monolithic alignment of views. Uh, some of this comes out in citizens' assemblies and uh, uh, our Singapore conversations, where competing views uh, are, are, are expressed. You need to then nevertheless find a path forward, much as has happened today in this forum, where you have competing views on the need for dominance in order to be effective in, in policy governance versus creating space for uh, multi-party views. And neither is absolutely correct. And I think that's the key thing we have to hold on to, that solving these various thorny problems is not about having an absolutist view or an ideological view. Um, we are in this together, and we are on this stage wanting the same thing. But I think I would expand on that last response that I gave to Ms. Ko, and I think Mr. Giam hit on this a little bit. In discharging that duty to Singaporeans, you must do your best. We, we must try our hardest with the mission and the duty and the responsibility that has fallen on our lap. You'd expect that of healthcare workers, you'd expect that of professionals, you'd expect that of artists, you'd expect that of academics and researchers, and I think you should expect no less of politicians. Um, and, and that, I think, uh, is the way that I see my duty and my, my, my responsibility. And I'm sure my colleagues do as well. Uh, we will be the better for it if we can hold that view in our heads as a set of values to shape our behavior. And I think Singapore will be the better for it uh, if we do it in that spirit. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you, Dr. Patricheng. Thank you, Ms. Giam. And thank you, Ms. Poir. You've... Uh, come here as competing politicians, but I think with the conversation, we are getting a sense of common purpose and uh, the prospect of uh, actually working together. And um, you've always, you've emphasized through the conversation about putting people uh, first. You've said it depends on how people feel, depends on how people take to this, and depends on what the value system uh, is and how we translate that to the next generation. So in 2031, we found that this conversation is extremely useful and uh, that uh, we are grateful for everybody's contributions uh, this afternoon, as well as that of Dr. Puttucheri, Mr. Giam, and Ms. Poir. Please join me in thanking them with a hearty round of response. Back to Shamil.